Hey guys, you're listening to episode 74 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking to Mike Miller, Senior Wealth Advisor with Ronald Blue Trust and host of the Talking Money radio program. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Mike Miller, Senior Wealth Advisor with Ronald Blue Trust and host of the Talking Money radio program. Mike founded the advising firm Plan First in order to incorporate biblical principles into the financial services he provides for clients, and four years ago, his firm joined Ronald Blue Trust. Mike also has reached countless people over the past 17 years through his radio program, Talking Money, where he shares much of his extensive financial advice. He has all sorts of tips for givers, and he shared some with us on this episode. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money, while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The sprint guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. And with that, let's get to the interview. We're here with Mike Miller today. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us today, Mike. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. You guys do a great job and get a lot of great information out there. And there's never too much financial information, especially as it relates to putting biblical principles along with those finances. And the more we have of that, the better this world should be. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, can you get us started? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. It's hard to tell a little bit about myself, but I'll go back and share a little bit at the beginning. So I'm a preacher's kid. So when I listened to the broadcast you guys had with David Champagne and found out he was a PK as well, so we have that in common. But when I grew up, this will give all the listeners a little idea of my personality and maybe my juvenile delinquency, maybe. But when I was growing up, our office, our home was right next to the church. So we had a parsonage right next to the church up in Mansfield, Ohio. And We had a Christian school that my dad helped start when we went in there. So when we moved to Ohio, I was five years old. When I left, we were 13. So it was my growing up years. And when I was probably nine or 10 years old, I was singing in the choir for the Christian school. So we would go to churches on Sunday night and sing to promote the school. Well, one of these Sunday nights, I got back earlier than the church service that my dad was in. I got back before they were done. So I was just at the house by myself. Well, we didn't have TV. My parents just didn't allow us to have TV. And so I was sitting there bored. And back in those days, and this is going to be hard for a lot of people to even fathom or comprehend, back then we didn't lock our doors. We had a screen door, but the door was not locked. And so I just walked in. And after a while sitting there being bored to death, I said, you know, I'm going to make this house the Parsonage house that the church owned, I'm going to make it look like somebody ransacked it. 
<laughs> so I went downstairs and I carefully turned over the lamps. I took newspapers and threw them all over the place. And this made it look like somebody went in there and just it ransacked it, please. Then I went around the corner. So I starting up the stairs, you could still see the front door. Well, my little brother comes in. So I had three brothers and one sister. There are five of us in this three-bedroom house. So all four of us boys stayed in the same room with bunk beds. So I went away to college. It wasn't anything for me because I went to Bob Jones. There were, at that time, five in the room. Well, that didn't bother me much because I was used to having three brothers in the room already. A lot of people couldn't stand that, but it didn't bother me. So I'm waiting for somebody to come home. My little brother comes, and he walks in the front door and sees all this mess. And he's like, oh, no, we've been broken into. So he takes off running and goes to get my next oldest brother. And they come back in, and he sees the same thing. He says, oh, man, we got to go get some help. Somebody's robbed our house. So they leave. Well, when they left, I went back downstairs and put everything back. So I put the newspapers <laughs> back, I put the cushions back, I put the lamps back, and everything was just like nothing ever happened. So when they came back again, they looked inside the house, and instead of thinking it must be a gag, they think, he must still be in here. <laughs> like, who's going to ransack a house and put it all back? But that's what they said. So they go get the men of the church, and they surround the house. So I'm going upstairs. I'm wondering what's going on outside. And I open up the curtains and the window that's right above the front door. I open up the curtains, and one of the men in the church sees me and looks up there and says, There he is. He's still there. He's still in the house. We see him. And I shut the curtain. I ran to my bedroom and got into the covers. I just, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> just hid. And finally they came in. One of my brothers came in and said, you know, they called the cops. They're going to arrest you. I said, well, they can't arrest me for ransacking my own house, can they? <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. So I didn't get punished for that. I think they thought the embarrassment was probably punishment <laughs> enough. But that's a story that my whole family remembers going on with that. So that was living next door to the church with a pastor as a dad and trying to behave yourself. And one of the things that I learned with my parents with four siblings and a pastor's salary, the money situation was always very tight. But they did a great job, and people can do this, did a great job of not making us feel like we were just poor. She just had ways of doing things to where we felt like you know, we weren't being deprived of anything. And people don't realize they can do that without a lot of money. And I learned that early on. So when you talk about, okay, what really did influence you in your life as you were growing up? Well, that was one of the things that influenced me a lot was we never had a lot of money. So it wasn't like I had this craving for money. I had more of a mental attitude and philosophy of being very frugal and trying to really save, even to the point, and my wife kids me about this, when we, when I had my own first car and she'd be with me, then I'd be just taking off real easy and I'd slow down real slow. And like, and this is when gasoline was 30 cents a gallon, you know, <laughs> it didn't really matter that much, but just it was ingrained in me. And that's how much you can influence your children to save money wherever you could. And even later on, even now, when I don't have to as much, it's still in there. You said, well, why should I waste? God's money that way when I don't have to. You still want to be a good steward because God's going to require that of you later. He's going to ask, you know, how did you handle what well, he knows? Why did you handle your money like you did? Why did you handle, I gave you all these resources. Why did you not use them for my glory instead of just for your own benefit? So I grew up in Ohio, finally went down 
I accused them of dropping me off in Greenville, South Carolina, Bob Jones, because they were moving from the church in Ohio to the church in the church plant that he was taking over in Maitland, Florida, just outside of Orlando. This is the year before Disney announced that they were coming to Orlando. So I started there in ninth grade and went all four years, but that's where I met my future wife. So we started dating as, as I say dating. Those who are familiar with Bob Jones know, okay, we were dating on campus. So it was, you know, I was 14, she was 13 when we went on our first date. And we dated all the way through, except for a couple of months when she lost her sentence and broke up with me for a few months. Other than that, <laughs> we dated the whole time that we were in school and finally graduated. And I studied accounting. And when I stopped, when I first started a job, I wanted to have a job that was going to be just for a year. I was trying to look for an accounting job, couldn't find one. But my old high school principal was working for a company called Liberty Life at the time. He was assistant manager at one of the sales offices here in town. So I said, okay, I'll just, I'll do that for a year until my wife finishes, then we'll go wherever. I had no idea where that was going to lead me. Ended up staying in town, working for that company for six years. And then decided they made some changes, and another fellow and I that I was working with at the company, we decided to go into business for ourselves. We wanted to be independent. We didn't want to just sell insurance representing one company. We wanted to represent the client. So we went into business called Plan Financial Services, and then within a year after that, financial planning was just becoming a real profession at the time. And so we decided that we were going to go into financial planning. So a year later, Plan First was born, and it was one of the first fee-only. We wanted to be fee-only, so the client always knew that whatever recommendations we had were going to be for their benefit, not for ours. But if they needed to implement any of the financial planning recommendations that we made, that let's say they needed some life insurance or they needed to buy some mutual funds, we still had a separate company that could sell that for them. And that went on for about five years, roughly. So 1991, we changed to completely fee-only. So when we did a financial plan for someone, and then if they wanted us to work with their investments, then they would be set up on an assets under management schedule, charging an f- annual fee. And I was naively optimistic, <laughs> if you can put those two together, because I thought, wow, once we turn to fee-only, I mean, the tax attorneys and CPAs and all those people that have clients that, that they want to have good, objective advice, they'd just be flooding our doors. <laughs> well, it doesn't work that way. You still <laughs> need to develop relationships, and you got to prove yourself that you know what you're doing. And so it took from 90 to about 95, 96 for it to really get a hold on things. We went from selling and making a 4 or 5% commission down to making 1% or less for each client. And so I mean, that long term, that works pretty well, but it can be pretty tight for a while. But we did that because we felt like there again, I wanted the client, whenever we decided that, well, you shouldn't have this investment anymore. We should sell this one and buy this one that I didn't do it because I wanted a new commission. I did it because I felt it was in their best interest. And so that was one of the main reasons we switched to completely fee only in the early nineties. And just to give some more perspective about the trials it takes when you're starting your own business like that. My wife, for the longest time, would have said, if anybody asked her, should I go into business for myself? She would have said, no, don't do that. Don't do it. It's too hard. It takes too long. At least it took me too long. It doesn't take everybody else that long, but it took me a long time to get it going. I'm just not a good salesperson, apparently. But the Lord finally blessed. But I would go in the office in the morning after we'd been at it for a while and I'd just get on my knees for a thing and say, God, you know, really, if you 
want me to be in this business, then you're going to have to bring clients to me because I've been trying everything I can, sending letters, cold calling people, trying to get them to buy into our philosophy of financial planning. And we just, it wasn't working. And that's where really God, I think a lot of times will take you down that path. So, you know, we're going to make sure that you know that when this thing starts to take off, it, it wasn't you. It was me that was doing it for you. And so every time I do that in the morning before anybody else got there in the office, something else would happen that week or that month. And the new client would come in and it would help get us just a little further down the road until finally, it, you know, we developed some good relationships with some large companies in Greenville, Cryvac, Michelin, Millican, ended up doing financial workshops for all those. And that was primarily because we were fee-only and they knew we weren't in there to sell their employees on any products. So we're able to get in those companies and that was a big part of it. And then eventually we get talking money into that. But that's the progression of how we got into plan first and how we got to where we're fee-only and wanted to make sure that the client knew we were on the same side and that we weren't as overtly Christian as we would have liked back then. You get scared sometimes and think, well, if I do that too much, I'm not going to get the clients. And we want to be salt and light, too. You don't want to just serve Christians because you want to be salt and light to those people who aren't believers and show them that a Christian financial planner can be as good or better technically than a non-believing advisor. You're not giving something up by using a Christian financial planner. And as I said, I did a whole lot of work for Channel 4, the local NBC affiliate here in Greenville. Did a lot of work for them over the years as well. Did a month-long segment where I was the News 4 money man, and we would do a segment every night during sweeps month. And I'd be on the 5, 5.36 o'clock newscast each time for like three minutes a time answering viewer questions. So you would think that much publicity would have brought in somebody asking questions, but... <laughs> Or wanting to become at least curious about becoming a client, but it just didn't, it didn't do that. So the radio did a whole lot more for me than any amount of TV work that I did. Yeah, thanks. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more of your faith background. Obviously, you grew up in a home of faith, and I'm sure that played a big part into it. But where did God really start to get your attention, and how did that kind of play out alongside these other career decisions that you were making? Yeah, yeah. So when I was in Mansfield again, I was six years old and I was in a vacation Bible school. A lot of people poo-poo vacation Bible schools, but, and the class I was in for VBS, the teacher asked if anyone wanted to accept Christ. And so I raised my hand and the teacher, I don't remember who that was, but one of the first things they said, well, we assume, yeah, well, you're the preacher's kid. (laughs) So you're already Christian, right? So, well, no, I don't know that I am. So that's when I became a believer right then. And I don't recall ever having another aha moment later. I know a number of times when you hear preachers and they talk about the fire and brimstone you know, sermons that are coming out there that make you feel like, wow, I'm not sure if I was saved now. I thought I was, but now I'm not sure I was. You ask again, say, God, please come into my heart. If I didn't do it, you know, please. So I remember several of those moments over the years. I said, wow, God, I certainly want to make sure that I'm one of your children because I certainly don't want to go to hell and I want to live for you here on this earth. So and then going to Christian schools pretty much all my life, you were always around Christians, which could be good and bad. 
It's good in the sense of the influence that you have, the positive influences, but it can also make you lazy and also not make you as strong in your faith. Um, so I got stronger in my faith when I was working at a service station. You're working around, it was a, what they call a gas station. We called it a service station down in Orlando. Every summer and every Christmas, that's where I would work. And the owner of the golf station liked the way I worked. And so he would be asking my dad several weeks before I get home for Christmas or summer, when's Mike getting back? When's Mike getting back? So as soon as I got back, so I'd get back like at 5, 6 o'clock in the evening. And the next morning at 6.30, he'd be at my door in his truck picking me up to go to the station to work for 12 hours. So I learned a lot then, but I was around people I hadn't been around before. They didn't use the kind of language that I was not used to hearing. And the way they would talk about their dates and the things they did on their dates and really what they were going for and had no respect for women. And it just was, wow, this is eye-opening for me to hear these kind of things. So it can give you a turning point. Do I let that influence make me go more toward that lifestyle? Or does it strengthen you in where you believe now? Well, I'd already started dating Kathy, my future wife, and that helped ground me so that I knew. So I've already got a girlfriend, so I'm not dating anybody else while I'm here in town. And it just reaffirmed my faith as opposed to made me draw from the faith. Because I wanted to be a testimony to those workers. They could tell that I was not cussing. I was not acting the way they were acting. And it's funny, the same thing happens now when I go to the golf club that we belong to, a great ministry opportunity. But the same thing happens now that happened then. The guys around you, they can tell when you don't act like they do, when they don't cuss like you do, when you hit a bad shot. <laughs> if I cussed every time I had a bad shot, boy, I'd really have a foul mouth. <laughs> but they could tell. And even some of them, when they'd say a mild you know, Christian cuss word, you know, it's like they would still apologize to me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that in front of you. <laughs> I said, that's okay. You're not going to hell because of that. So it still gives you a good ministry opportunity. But I was used to it all the way back from when I was in high school and college because I worked at that station for seven years from, my, I think, my 10th grade all through college. Yeah. So that's kind of where that fit, Keelan. So, Mike, as you were advancing in your career, how did faith and finances begin to intersect for you? You know, I'm not sure they ever began to. I think my intention was at the very beginning to make sure that I was using my business for God's glory. So when Kingdom Advisors started, we had not been in business that long because it's been 20 years. Well, it probably been 10, 12 years before Kingdom Advisors started. And that, to me, was a ray of sunshine, a breath of fresh air, like, okay, wow, now I've got other people who want to do the same thing I want to do, and they're going to give me resources to how to do it and accountability to a certain extent that would help, I think, help you focus the efforts that you have with clients with making sure that they at least thought about how their finances were being managed and especially the believers that you worked with. So, wow, are you being a good steward? Have you thought about X? Have you thought about not necessarily just leaving some amount of your assets in your will. Have you thought about sacrificial giving? I remember hearing a preacher at Kingdom Advisors once, and he was talking about how he would talk to the people in his church, the, the wealthier people in his congregation, 
And they would talk about how they had left you know, X amount of money in their will, their estate, and it was going to go to the church. And he would say, well, that's not really sacrificial giving. I mean, you're gone, so you don't need it anymore. So to just ask questions to put in their mind, have you ever thought about this? Have you thought about what your legacy is? And you've heard this from other Ronald Blue advisors. I mean, how much is enough for you? In your, the title of your podcast, what's your finish line? I don't think Jim Wise told this story for you guys, but I think a good illustration of the story he told of a client who called him up and said, Jim, we've gotten a check, pretty sizable check here that we weren't expecting, several hundred thousand dollars. What do we do with it? And most advisors, it would be like, well, let's get it in here. Let's invest it and see what we can do with it. Instead, the question was, I don't know. Let's pray about it because we've already done the planning for you. You already know what your finish line is. You know what you need. And this is not something you need. So why did God send this money your way? And the following weekend, this couple went to a session where a ministry was presenting. And the amount of money that that ministry needed was the exact same amount that this couple had gotten. So they gave it all away. So they called him the next week all excited. And they, hey, Jim, we gave this all away. And he said, well, that's great, you know. And that just doesn't happen in the advisory world. So when you're trying to be a good steward and please God with your finances, the mentality just is and should be different in the way you respond to people, whether it's you know, paying off debt instead of investing the money, paying off your home, making gifts, even while you're, whatever it is, that is something you need to be aware of. And some people just aren't until we ask them the question. Are there any concepts or verses that come to mind that have really been kind of an anchor for you in either how you view money or how you kind of discuss money with clients? Yeah, I was thinking about this more and and wrote some down just to make sure I didn't forget which ones that really made the most impact on me. And my life verse has always been Jeremiah 33.3. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. Well, that's kind of my personality was, yeah, let's go for it. Well, that's not always what that means. That doesn't mean you've got the mentality that gets rich quick and then you believe God and you're going to make all kind of money. We know that's not the case, but it was kind of a basis for that. And then a verse that I've used many times, and I usually use it on the radio show, my radio show around Christmas time, just to remind people of the true reasons why we have money and how you've got to be careful about how you don't let money use you and that you use money properly. In Hebrews 13, 6, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I don't have to worry about, I don't have to have that love of money. And even when I was starting Plant First, I wanted to have the mentality, well, let me just satisfy the needs of people. If I satisfy the needs for people and I charge a reasonable fee for that, the rest of it is going to take care of itself. And it really has over the years. God's blessed that mentality. And then, of course, the parable of the talents, which a lot of people that talk about money in the Bible will use. And you've got the master who's going to leave, and he gives one, 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 two, and one, five talents. You know, invest this while I'm gone. And we know what happened to the five and two. They doubled the money, and they made their money. But the last one, and I've used this multiple times, even when I'm talking about annuities, that the reason the servant who had one still had one and buried it in there. He says, I had fear. All right. I was afraid of you because I knew you were a harsh man. I was afraid of you. So I just hid the talent. And so a lot of people, they don't really 
invest their money, don't really use their money correctly because of fear. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Instead of thinking, well, wait a minute, God just says, and that can be a, even though we don't think of that as being a love of money, I think it is a love of money because you're worried about, I'm going to run out of it. And so you have such a concern that you don't really relate to money as you should. So, you know, don't have that fear for money. Show, and there's another verse in Psalm, I think it's 36 or something, where God says, I've never let my children go hungry. I had a client that quoted that one to me during the 08, 09 Great Recession. And she came in. She didn't have that much money. She wasn't a large client. But she says, I'm not worried about it. She says, because God's telling me, God told me his word not to worry about it. I'll never go hungry. And so it was a good reminder for me. I was getting preached to then instead of being the one ministering to somebody. And in college, my society, Alpha Omega, was a big influence in my life. The society, and this was at Bob Jones, but we were always trying to be different than everybody else. We tried to be different than everybody else. And the rest of the school didn't appreciate that most of the time. (laughs) So when we played soccer against any team, it was the whole school was against us because nobody liked us very much. And I even had the president at the time, or he was sometime later, he was asking me about that because he didn't like Omega either, but his kids both joined. And he was just talking to me about how we brought that on ourselves. That's right. But, But let me ask you a question. So when we leave, when you get out on your own, you leave college and you're on your own and you get into the world, the world wants you to be just like them. If you're used to trying to be like everybody else that's all around you, your tendency then is going to be like, I want to be like everybody else around you. Well, because I was in this weird society that wanted to be different than everybody else, I didn't care about being the same as everybody else. I wanted to be different than everybody else. So it didn't matter to me if I was a Christian and I was acting different than everybody else. No, that's fine, because that's how I wanted to be salt and light, was to be different than everybody else. And the verse, the theme verse for that society was 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. If there's a verse that has something to do with money about self-control, and that's one of the biggest issues we had. Because I have people ask me, I taught a workshop this past week at a company. I opened it up all the time. People ask this question. If you had to give one piece of financial advice, what advice would that be? This is always an easy answer for me. Spend less than you make and do it for a long period of time. If you want just one piece of financial, if you'll do that, you'll probably never get into trouble because you'll always be spending less than you make. You'll always have some excess. And then Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. And people often forget the next two words, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He wants your requests. He wants you to rely on him for all this. And then the last one I'll share, one other passage that's our company verse passages, but First Timothy 6.10, and people misquote this all the time. You know, love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and usually that gets changed to money is the root of all evil. That's what most people hear. So no, it's the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. But why put that in there unless it really is an issue for people? Because money has a way of grabbing you instead of you grabbing it. So when you're counseling people, advising people about this, whether it's in my Sunday school class that I'm teaching or some other class I'm teaching, to be able to put that thought in people's mind that, wow, remember, it's not your money. And that's what this broadcast, this podcast is all about. It's not your own money. 
And if you really, really, really believe that, this is not your money. You'll just think differently about how you spend that money. Should I really spend that money there or should I spend it someplace else? Where would God really want me to spend that money? And I know the company verse at Ronald Blue Trust, I would imagine you've heard this before. If you haven't, shame on the other Ronald Blue people who don't do. But First <laughs> Timothy 6, 18 to 19, it starts with, instruct those who are rich in this world in this present world, which can be, you know, for us, rich. I mean, we're compared to the rest of the world, everybody in the U.S. is rich in that perspective. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Great verse. When we compared our core values before we started with Ronald Trust, the core values that we had, uh, we had just developed within the last couple of years, six core values, and looked up the six core values at Ronald Trust. All of them were the same except one. So that's where the culture fit is, was so good when we joined that firm. I felt like, and our team does, we can do a whole lot more teaming up together than for the kingdom than we could doing our own things separately. You know, combine those resources together. And that's the way it's definitely gone that way. I think it's really helpful. You talked about having kind of a personal life verse and then a company verse. It's very evident that you have taken a lot of steps to root yourself and the work that you do in scripture, which I think is so important to be able to lean on that and use that as a guide, especially in conversations with others you mentioned Talking Money, your radio show. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be? And I'd really like to hear if you've been able to hear stories of how that radio show has impacted others. It started, and this is really a God thing. So at the end of 2006, I had been doing some regular advertising on a local Christian, but primarily it was a music radio station. It was the one that was affiliated with Bob Jones at the time, and they wanted to change their format on Saturday mornings to go to talk radio. And the station manager called me and asked if I would host a one-hour live call-in program on Saturday mornings, and we didn't have a name for it. So I came up with the name Talking Money and was surprised nobody else had it. <laughs> I did searches and couldn't find it anywhere. So we copyrighted Talking Money. And I said, well, it's Saturday morning. That's every Saturday morning. It's at 10 o'clock. It's live, so it means I have to be there. And (laughs) I really don't know if I'm going to get any clients from it. What's going to happen? So I said, okay, I'll do it for three months, and we'll see how it goes. Well, I'm in my 17th year of hosting Talking Money, (laughs) so I guess it worked. But I found that very quickly, you could run ads for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, but apparently – having 47 minutes roughly of actual airtime to explain topics and people understand your philosophy, your attitude. They can decide whether or not they think they're going to trust you just from how you sound and how you say things. Within weeks, I was getting calls from clients, from prospective clients. One of the first clients I received, Christian fella, I said, how'd you hear about me and plan first. And he said, well, a friend of mine listens to your radio program. He didn't listen. A friend of his listened. 
and said he should call me. So he became a client that year. He was retiring. And then about three months later, the friend who listens to the radio became a client as well. His wife was a doctor, and they still clients today. He saw both of them the last month. I don't work with them regularly. but So what we didn't know at that time was the very next year, I'd been teaching workshops at a local company for probably 14, 15 years, pre-retirement workshops. And they decided the next year to do them all in-house. And I didn't know that. So this was a way for God to allow us to be exposed to more potential people that needed our services. God knew that was going to go away. I didn't know it was going to go away. And about six years ago, we got that client back. Eddie's teaching those pre-retirement seminars now for us as a branch office, as our firm. So what goes around comes around. But we didn't know what was going to happen and then how that started. And then I think one of the biggest satisfactions to me with the radio show is what I get from listeners is they seem so grateful to find out that there is someone else who could advise them on financial matters that shares the same Christian worldview that they share. And they didn't know anybody was out there that would do that. And then I've been able to help a number of them. So I've handed out Andy Stanley's book, How Good is Good Enough. I've ordered boxes of these things like a gospel track. So somebody would be talking about their children or even them. And sometimes I'll give it to the parent saying it's for their child when really I'm thinking it's for you. I want you to read this first, and then you can pass it on to your child. Because so many people in the South, they're Christians. They're nominal Christians, or they just they want to think they're Christians, but they really haven't accepted Christ as their, in their life. It's, it's not really real to them. And so when they get that book, How Good is Good Enough, I even shared it with the station manager at where my program is. And he so appreciated it. He's Catholic and just says, that's me. You know, nothing's happened to that yet, but we've had several conversations. So it's given me the opportunity to share that. And there's another interesting book called Letters to a Young Progressive that Mike Adams wrote. He's a professor of sociology and criminology at UNC Wilmington, tenure professor up there. He wrote this book a number of years ago, writing letters to one of his students who was a liberal progressive that he could tell thought like he did when he was in school. He writes these letters about all different kind of things to help make him think a little bit more about why do you believe what you believe? Because most of the time they don't really understand why they believe what they believe. And so I've been able to share that title, that book, give the book away as I could. That's a way that I could minister to people that I would never have had if I hadn't had the radio program to give me that opportunity. And then in sharing, you know, Christmas time and Easter time when I can talk live on the airway about my belief in God, why is there Christmas and you know, who have you been relying on this year for your safety net? Has it been your investments, especially in a year when investments aren't doing very well? Is this really what you're going to rely on or is it going to be your faith in God? So having that opportunity to speak like that to how many five or six people that are listening to my program, how many are listening to the program? At least they get to hear the gospels out there. And it's on my talkingmoneyradio.com website too where people can go in there and listen to that and i'll probably even post this on there so that people can just hear a different thought a different part of me that maybe they didn't hadn't heard before yeah i mean i think god uses platforms like that in so many different ways and the funny thing about that and i think it's kind of true of this podcast too is we often don't get to see what's on the other side you know God's doing all kinds of work in the background. And a lot of times we just have to trust that he's got it in his hands. And we just follow his instructions one day at a time and leave the rest to him. So I'm sure it very much has been the same for your program as well. Oh, absolutely. 
So I know that you are a part of Ronald Blue Trust now, and I'd love to hear how you made that kind of transition and what that's been like since joining. Yeah, that was another very much a God thing. And there again, reminding folks listening, you've got to be at least open to the fact that God may be leading you in a certain direction that you may not have considered yourself. And if a door opens, go through it. If it closes, then go a different way. I mean, God doesn't want you going that way. No matter how much you might think is the best thing, it may not be. We can't see the big picture. God can see the big picture. Of course, he sees and knows everything. So I was working on a transition as I got older and had been in the business for so long, trying to decide, even work with some Schwab consultants. We were using Schwab as a custodian at the time. They provided consultants to help us decide whether or not to do an internal succession, an external succession, all this kind of stuff. But I knew I wanted to work on it well ahead of time. So I was only 55 or so, and I was working on it. I wanted to make sure that we'd set this up well ahead of time. I've been working on it for several years and had gotten, Schwab had connected me with a firm out of Atlanta that was interested in talking to me about merging with their firm. There's a good bit larger than we were. So I started having some serious discussions with them, sharing financial information on the firm and getting a little better idea of what they were like and meeting them. The guy I was working with, I believe, was a Christian, but I'd asked him several questions about one of the main partners that we had lunch with one time and uh, asking the guy I was working with, do you think he's a believer? And the first time he answered that question, he says, well, you know, he's kind of private on that. I'm not really sure. Look, you could tell hesitant. It wasn't an obvious thing like, oh, yeah, he is. Well, then a few months later, we were having another conversation, and I asked him again. I said, now, you said a few months ago that you weren't sure that this gentleman was a believer or not. Oh, yes, he is. I mean, he has Bible studies in his office and this, like, well, I'm getting confused now. (laughs) Is this the same person you were talking about earlier? I don't know. So around that same time, I went to a workshop in Nashville that was put on by StoryBrand. So I was going there. I think it was a Kingdom Advisor sponsored thing. And so Don, Don Miller, who runs that particular company. So I was talking to them. I went to visit and there was a guy there that I knew had known kingdom advisors called his name is Vince Burley. He was a Ronald Blue Trust. So I asked him one of the breaks. I said, what do you think about this company I'm talking to? And he said, he told me what he thought about it. Nothing bad. He said, why are you asking? I said, well, we're thinking about merging. And he said, we ought to talk to the folks over at Ronald Blue. I said, well, I didn't even know they were thinking about merging with anybody. My first conversation with them had been 20 years earlier. It was in 2020. Brian Shelper, the president of the company now, had approached me about merging with them back in 2000. So fast forward almost 20 years. And then I get their name brought up to me again. Well, I'd known a lot of the Ronald Blue people over at Kingdom Advisors. So always impressed with them and thought highly of them. And Jim Wise was one of them. I called him up and we started the conversation again. And one of my concerns was, and especially my wife's concerns, we were a little leery about any company that uses Christianity as like an advertising thing. Like you, you go by the transmission shop in town and they have Jesus saves on the side of it. Well, that's the same company that when you go in there is going to charge you too high a price and not do the job right. And wow, they're just using that as a way to get you in thinking we're trustworthy. See, because we say Jesus saves on the outside. We want to make sure that this Ronald Blue Trust, even though they're overtly Christian, biblical, 
they weren't just using that as a facade, as a marketing thing. So Brian Shupper called me up one Friday afternoon, or he texted me. I was at an all-day board meeting for Miracle Hill, which is a homeless foster care ministry. It's a very large ministry here in town. I was on the board, and I've been on the board that long at the time. And he said that Nick Stone Street, who was the CEO, was going to be coming to town and wanted to speak with me. So my wife and I met with him on the next day at lunch, had about a two-hour-plus lunch. And we shared with him some of those same concerns. Well, we were already talking with Brian, already get an idea of, okay, this may be a good way to go for us. We got out in the car after that lunch conversation with Nick. My wife looked at me and said, that's what you need to do. That's who you need to go with. And, of course, when she said that, it's like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> we got to do it now. But I was already leaning that way. I just wanted to get, I wanted to get her input because she's going to have a different perspective than I am. And so we started the process. This was in like February. And then by March 1st of next year, did the official start date. And we signed up with them. That was four years ago this past March 1st that we've been there. And we lost one advisor. That one advisor, I believe he's a Christian, but if you understand what I'm saying, it just wasn't part of his DNA. So it wasn't like, I'm a Christian, I believe I'm a Christian, but am I going to translate that fully into my career, into my advising? He wasn't there. So it was good that he left. He took a few clients with him, but not near as many as I'm sure he thought he was going to, but still, it was the right thing. And God knew we had to have the right people on the bus, as it were. And so we had the right people on the bus, and we've grown a lot since that four years ago. And more importantly, for the clients that appreciate it, and some of them still, when they ever talk to me, they still say plan first. They don't say run a blue trust because they were <laughs> clients for 15 years at plan first. So they still haven't gotten that in their head. At least as far as they're concerned, it's still plan first, which makes me feel good. But still, <laughs> it's run a blue trust. But the team themselves, that's where it's a joy for me to see them really latch on to the philosophy of Ronald Blue Trust and the biblical advice and the desire to do it that way. We still work with non-Christian clients, and I encourage that. We have one client that I thought for sure would probably leave us when we went with Ronald Blue Trust, and we had a client meeting with them. We shared with them you know, our reasons, my reasons behind it. He'd been a client for quite a while, but he was a self-proclaimed, he and his wife both, atheist. We don't believe in God. He would share his reasons with me. So I thought, he's going to be so uncomfortable with this, he's not going to want to stay. But at the end of the meeting, he says, Mike, if you're okay with this, we're okay with it. And Chris still not believers. We still have opportunities to share the gospel with them. But they stayed, even though they're atheists. So I think that's a good sign that you're not ramming it down people's throat, but you're obviously they know something's different. And so when you have clients that call you up, when a child has been arrested for DUI and I had that happen to me and I was able to talk to this long-term client and say, look, what your son needs is God. But when you have people calling you up and asking you those kind of questions, it means you're saying some of the right things and people want to be speaking with someone, especially with their finances, I think, who have, even if they don't agree with that philosophy, they're not believers themselves, but there's a trust factor there that so okay, I know this firm has a higher accountability than another firm does, you know, because they want to make sure God is pleased in all this too. Not just helping people make money. If that's all you're doing is helping people make money. Then you've lost your calling. That's not it. It's got to be not just make money. It's got to be what do you do with those resources God has allowed you to have. Mike, I was thinking as you were talking, you mentioned a couple times that you would encourage your group to continue working with Christians and non-Christians alike. And 
I was wondering the conversations that you have around things like generosity. Is there any difference in the conversation, how you've seen those concepts develop? Because I think we all know generosity is not exclusively for Christians. I've seen non-Christians express incredible generosity, but there seems to be sometimes a distinction in the why behind it. Have you seen that in your experience? Yeah, that's fortunately and unfortunately. So when there's somebody who's not a believer, obviously giving conversation is going to be completely different because their mindset's completely different. They can't think of it as like, I want to help God's kingdom. It's going to be what your legacy is. And so when you talk to somebody about their legacy, and some of them still haven't thought about it, they think, there's one client I'm thinking of that is worth you know, probably north of 20 million, and he's got two children, and it's like, okay. So I've asked him, so I've asked them, I said, well, how much is enough for these kids? And do you want to have a legacy somewhere else? So he's talked to his alma mater. They've been on him. You know, they're pretty, those advancement departments are pretty good at trying to get you to <laughs> leave money to them in your will and that kind of stuff. But I've talked to him about his church because he does go to church and how much you may want to leave to the church. But a lot of it is just getting them to think about it because their normal thought process typically is, I'm just going to leave it to my spouse and to my kids equally and to my grandkids. And that's where it stops. And to at least have them, because I've had multiple people say, well, I've just never thought about that before. And then if they get to agree with that thought, that concept, then you can start also talking to them about some tax-saving ways to make those transfers. Because then when you get a charitable organization involved in that transfer, there's some things you, you can do to help make sure that you reduce the state potential state taxes as well, which is a little hard to do right now with the state tax exemption so high. But in 2026, when it goes back down, then the more people will be thinking about those if it goes back down. And right now, we don't know, but it looks like it's going to sunset and we'll be back to the old rules. Depends on who's in Congress at the time, whether or not it gets extended or not. But nothing else than to ask the questions, to get them thinking about it. And so we've had several people set up some gift annuities and set up some charitable trusts that they hadn't thought of before. And they needed the income and, and didn't think that they could give the money away because they thought, oh, I need the income from it. So, well, you really want this income to go to this organization, Hillsdale College, or to the local, like Miracle Hill or something like that. We set up trust for both of those to where the client still gets the income from it, them, their spouse, or their family. And then when they're gone, the money goes to that ministry. And they got a pretty good tax deduction when they did it. And then they get the income from it while they're living. And then when they die, the organization gets it. Although I've heard organization, the, the advancement people tell me that one of the surest ways to make sure you're going to live a long time is to invest in a gift annuity. Because the <laughs> organization doesn't get it until you die. It's like, this seems like they never die. They just always keep living. <laughs> so if you want a secret to long life, you know, give it away. Put it in a gift annuity. <laughs> Another good example I had, uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money. They were, like I said, five kids, and God did allow them to buy a piece of property in Altamont Springs, Florida, just outside of Orlando. They bought two lots and put a manufacturing home on one and left the, the other was just woods, sand. It's everything down there, sand, sand and wood. And they say he didn't have any money and at least much money. And I helped him with what they had. And they found out that the county was going to make a new road between two main roads that are on the north and south sides of them. They were going to put a four-lane road, and guess where it was going to go? Right in front of their two pieces of property. So now their property got zoned from residential to commercial, 
And a dentist ended up coming in and buying both those pieces of property, and they made so much more money than they would have had they not bought that property years earlier at that particular site. So God knew that ahead of time. But they never used it. Like I said, they were so frugal, they weren't buying anything unless for anything. But when they passed away, they had their, this was another nice thing to see. In Florida, we advised almost everyone. Really, it's rare that I wouldn't advise someone in Florida to have their assets inside a living trust so they don't have to worry about probate and so forth. And he put all of his money into the living trust. It changed all of his accounts to the name of the living trust, even his automobile. So I was, I was so proud of that when he died that I went into, as the as my mom died four months later, they died real close to each other, 86, 87 years old. And coming in to settle the estate and then looking at the will and the trust, and he gave probably 60% of it away. Wow. You know, as whatever he had, and it, most of it went to evangelistic type organizations because he was very much, he wasn't an evangelist, he was a pastor, but he's very much an evangelist too, where some pastors are not. He was always trying to share the gospel wherever he went, handing out different kinds of tracts. And he had a very unique way of speaking with people and getting them to engage in the conversation. And that was neat to see. And so, you know, I was able to write these checks to all these different organizations. But that was a great example for me to see that, wow, even though he didn't have much money, he was still wanting to use his resources for God's kingdom, not just to give it away to us or anybody else. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Mike, I would love to hear how God is continuing to stretch you today and what you're excited about coming down the line in the next five or ten years. Well, I have a unique situation where I have a disabled daughter and a wife who has a lot of health issues. So it makes a unique situation with trying to figure out you know, what to do, how much can you give, how much did God give you this money to make sure that your children are taken care of and their medical needs and so forth. But I'm excited just to see how, as I phase out of full-time work and start doing more, continuing with the radio program, because I feel like I'm reaching a lot of people with that. And that's a way for me to use my years of experience to teach others and also branching off into other public speaking that another fellow that worked for me for a long time, Dr. Jim Roeke, and I are going to team up to start doing more teaching about money in some of the local churches around town. We've got a retired pastor who knows all the other pastors, and we're going to work together to so be it different than your financial piece or some of these other programs that are out there. And you'll have, instead of having somebody monitor the sessions from the video, you'll actually have an expert that's helping you teach. So if you've got a question, you can actually ask the question and hopefully get an answer. So I'm excited to see what God's going to use those talents that he's allowed me to gain over the years and, and use that to teach others to hopefully have an exponential effect. You teach somebody and they hopefully teach their friends, their kids, their whomever, and it starts to go out and branch off like that. Yeah, I'm really excited to see how your teaching develops and continues to impact people like you've been doing for so many years, just to continue that amazing work that is so needed. And I get to see a little bit of that through the work that I do as well. So I just appreciate your heart for teaching. Well, we like to wrap up every episode with our manager's minute, and that's just a chance to share one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So, Mike, do you have any suggestions for our listeners today? Well, I'm going to share one of the story I meant to share earlier that really made an impact on me that I think would help people think outside the box a little bit. When I was working at that golf service station during high school and college, 
And the owner, you know, he loved the way I worked. He loved my work ethic. He took a week off a vacation he'd never done before and put me in charge because he knew that it would be opened up in time and closed in time. And you think there would be other people who could do that, but they were so rare that people just had a work ethic. But one thing he did for me a number of times over the years, he knew I was going back to school. He'd give me cash under the table. I mean, it, was just, it wasn't part of my job. It was just like cash. He wanted to help me out and give me money. And that made such an impact on me as a young adult to think, wow, he's giving me, it's obviously his own money. He's giving me this money. So I've tried to replicate that myself, whether it's somebody that's doing a job for me in my house that I'll make sure I give them. My wife's the same way. We'll give them an extra tip. We're trying to by our example, show that, hey, look, we're different. We're not the same as everybody else. And I think one way to share that with people, and it may give you another opportunity to talk to them to say, you know, where do you go to church? And I understand why people give anonymous gifts, but I think you need to be careful that if you can use that gift to help minister to somebody because they know who gave it, that that is a reason to make sure they know who gave that gift. There's some reasons to give it anonymously, and I've heard too many people that speak, whether they're at Kingdom Advisors or wherever else, and they talk about how much money they gave away. So, well, man, now you're getting to bragging about, and you're not maybe giving us the amount, but you're talking to me about how much you gave, and but it almost sounds like you're bragging about it. You're not really giving God the glory about that. So, well, look at me. Look how much I'm giving away now. So I think making a concerted effort to give money to people you see that need it, whether you get the tax deduction for it or not, and have your kids see that. We set up a donor advised fund and having our children help us decide who to give the money to. One of our sons and daughter-in-law wanted to give some money to a lady who was going to go on the mission field. So it gave us a chance to talk through that and say, okay, you could give them all the money that she's asking for. Should you do that? Why shouldn't you do that? And it helped them think through, okay, well, how do we do this? So it gives you a good opportunity for that. And I think Working with someone who can help you maximize the tax law. I know one of the things you talked about, we talked about before we ever went on the recording the air, was what are some other ideas and things that people can use to help maximize their giving. And I think the one that I thought of that is probably has the most wide potential use is what I call bunching deductions. With the standard deductions so high, People making gifts to the church and they're thinking I'm getting a tax deduction for it, but they're not because between their state income tax and their property tax and the limitations on that and then the giving, they're not getting over the you know twenty six, twenty seven thousand dollars is not there. But in many instances you can tell somebody, Well, if you were to let's say take three, four, five years worth of contributions and make them all in one year and put them in a donor advised fund. You can still make the contributions over five years, but in that one year, that's going to get you over that standard deduction, and you'll be able to take a decent tax deduction that year where you would never otherwise. And then making sure people have had people that converted their traditional IRAs to their Roth IRAs, they converted it all. And I'm saying, don't do that because when you get 70 and a half and you can start making a qualified charitable distribution and make a free contribution out of your IRA, if it's all in Roth, you can't do that. It doesn't help any to do that. So you pay taxes on money that you didn't have to pay taxes on, that you should have waited until you were seven and a half, and then you can start giving that money away tax-free. But you have to work with somebody who understands that and can look down the road 
for you. And so to use a good Christian financial planner, I like to think in many times, if not most times, it pays for itself. But it's not so we can earn more fees. It's so we can really help you advance the kingdom in a way that's the most tax efficient and cost-effective way possible. Yeah, How's that? 100% agree. And those are some great tips right there, actually. I had not heard the one about keeping a traditional IRA because of being able to kind of maximize if you were to just give that straight into charitable giving when you're going to the distributions. That's a great tip there. I had a prospect come in. It was five or six million dollars. Single guy, never been married, no children. He converted all of his traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. It was six million dollars worth. He never did become a client. But that first meeting that we had, the only meeting we had, he said, I've decided I'm going to give all the money, all the IRA money to my alma mater. <laughs> you mean you paid taxes and all that IRA so that you could give it away to a tax exempt organization? It's like, <laughs> you could have used this a few years ago <laughs> instead of now. Yeah. <laughs> but those are the kind of things that, that people don't know what they don't know. And even when people get to be seven and a half, I'll have somebody come in my office that's, I did first part of this year, I think maybe it was February, January, February. His brother, who's not a client, but he's referred, he's a accountant kind of guy, but he sent me several clients. And they're both over seven and a half, and their mother's over seven and a half. She's 90-something. And I said, now, this year, assuming you become a client, even if you don't, she was younger than her husband, so she was just turning seven and a half. And I said, don't make any contributions till later this year when you turn seven and a half. And then catch up on all your IRA contributions, because if you make them before then, they don't count. It has to be the day you turn seven and a half. So you wait till seven and a half, and now you start giving the money away. And then you'll get be able to give it all away tax-free, whereas right now you're not getting a tax deduction for any of it. And that first year that somebody turns seven and a half, they don't think about, oh, i got to wait till I'm seven and a half so I can give that money away. They just don't do it. So I tell them if it's a small church that's really dependent on their income, so you may want to tell the treasurer that what's going on, that you're just not giving the money to not give it. So I'm going to give it later. It's just going to come from my IRA than when I turn seven and a half. But a lot of planning ideas like that that we like to share with clients. And I talk about it on the radio all the time, but I still have people come in who say they listen to the radio show all the time and they still don't do it. So, okay, well, you need somebody to look at you straight in the eye and tell you this is what you need to do and do it. It's going to help you a bunch. Yeah, I completely agree. And so glad that there's people like you and the, the rest of the Ronald Blue team to fill that and Cody. It's a big Cody's team. <laughs> and Cody. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mike. This has been a fantastic conversation. And before we close, where can people find you? Where can people learn more? So, well, other than just going to ronblue.com forward slash Greenville, I think the talkingmoneyradio.com. So the radio podcast is you can find anywhere you can get most where you can find podcasts, but then you can go to the the actually right straight to the website and talkingmoneyradio.com. And there you can search by topic. So if you want to learn about taxes or insurance or annuities or whatever it is, you just type that in the search bar. It'll show you the different programs that we covered that. So I have tax attorneys quite frequently on the air. I had several Ronald Blue people, including Jim, but other people besides Jim on there too. I probably had half a dozen. Nick's been on several times just to hear those stories and hear more about the trust services and things like that. So that's the best place to probably start talkingmoneyradio.com. All right. And I encourage everybody to check that out. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. We really appreciate you giving us the time and sharing a little bit about your story. 
Thanks, guys. I appreciate it and enjoyed being with you. Let's do it again sometime, like five years from now, and see what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> Keep doing a great job you're doing. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 74. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>